0: will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with Location Telematics. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com.
0: When you walk into a hospital, technology is everywhere. In one room, a surgeon is giving a patient a bionic knee. In another room, a CT scanner is creating this incredible 3D picture of the inside of a person's body. But in other places, the hospital feels less high-tech. Doctors are still reading patients' charts and making decisions partly on evidence but largely on instinct. This part of the hospital is not so different from what it might have looked like, you know, 50 years ago. And bringing new technology to this part of medicine, to care at the bedside, is a really hard, really interesting problem. Because you not only have to figure out how to use technology to deliver useful information to the doctor at the right time, you also have to figure out how to convince the doctor that the information is actually worth listening to. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem, the show where I talk to people who are trying to make technological progress. My guest today is Suchi Sarya. She's the founder and CEO of a company called Bayesian Health. And she's also a professor at Johns Hopkins, where she runs a lab focused on machine learning and healthcare. Suchi's problem is this. How can you use artificial intelligence to detect when hospital patients are at risk of potentially deadly complications? And then, once you've done that, how can you get doctors to believe that the AI's warning is worth paying attention to? She told me she first got interested in healthcare sort of by accident, when she was a grad student at Stanford studying AI and robots.
2: You know, I grew up actually being fascinated by AI. I loved AI. And really most of my interest was on the algorithmic front and like looking at robotics and building robots that were really smart. You know, and I got acquainted with medicine through a a friend, colleague, who was a doctor taking care of babies. And what I learned through her was that this is all this data we're starting to collect, but literally nobody was doing designing any software to make sense of it. So it was just coming from a world where, you know, I studied all kinds of data day in, day out, to with robots doing fun tasks like yeah. getting the robot to hold the ball or juggle the ball. Yeah. To then realizing holy crap. There's like so many more useful things we could be doing. So that was really my first discovery of like how big a gap there was between people who thought about AI versus people versus the problems that needed to be solved and how little we
0: understood about these problems. So uh, so you decide that this is going to be your thing, right? This is your life's work now.
2: I mean, in the beginning, I wasn't convinced in the (laughs) beginning. It was just about spending a few years helping out and making sure we are able to make, you know. In the beginning, it was about my next three years. Uh-huh. Like, I was afraid of medicine. I was afraid of the complexity of medicine. Uh-huh. Like, it wasn't an easy field. It's not one where they welcome you.
0: Uh-huh. Right? Just as an
2: engineer, you don't come in and, like, at least 12, 13 years ago, that wasn't the culture. But, like
0: Right. Like a, like a MD, uh, an MD at a hospital does not want to hear from some AI researcher. They're busy.
2: Oh, no, for sure. And they're like, we're busy. We have real work to do. Yeah. What is this? Like, this all sounds as esoteric mumbo-jumbo.
0: Yeah. And so you say, you know, we're collecting all this data in healthcare and we're not doing anything with it. That is not intuitive. Like, that's not, you know... I think most people sort of prior, and this is at an academic hospital, right? Your friend is at Stanford Hospital, a very prestigious academic hospital. I think Stanford Hospital, I think data, I think these are people doing research. So what do you mean when you say we're collecting all this data and not doing anything with it?
2: Yeah, so 12, 13, 14 years ago, this field was very new. And at the time, even collecting and storing this data... Natural question was, can we afford it? It uh-huh. costs dollars to store this data. Why would we do that?
0: And when you say, what what kind of data are you talking about here when you say collect and store this data?
2: So literally, this was at the time babies entering, you know, in the neonatal ICU. Yeah. These are premature babies that are born. In real time, devices are collecting heart rate and vitals and oxygen saturation data. And like and so that kind of detailed data, which is much more bulky, yeah. was historically not stored. Instead, what they would uh-huh. do is they'd take like 15 minute averages and capture that. Okay. And naturally the question came up, do we need to store it? This is really expensive data, let's just throw it away. After 48 hours, we don't need it anymore, let's just throw a quick summary of it.
0: Uh huh. So you might do a study, you might track certain data points, but the idea that you're gonna just, as a matter of course, be storing all of this data that is now being generated and saved because electronic medical records are just being adopted, Nobody, nobody was doing that. Nobody had really thought to do it. It was an expensive prospect. It didn't seem like there would be a good reason to do it.
2: Exactly. And, and coming from AI, where we looked at, you know, fingerprint data on the Internet in retail or uh-huh. finance, then, the you know, we, it was so natural to think about how this data teaches you things. That it felt crazy to me that like we wouldn't similarly learn all sorts of amazing things about these babies or human body or how we're involved or like what are the signs and fingerprints of disease? Uh-huh. How did they show up?
0: When you say fingerprint data, that's a that's a metaphor, right? What, what, is, what does fingerprint data mean in the context of sort of e commerce and online finance?
2: Well, like they went to this site and then they came to this site, uh-huh. or like they saw an ad somewhere else about this, and now right. you know they're searching for something. And it shows you
0: intent. It's this moment 10 years ago when like the, when people are using data to know like everything about what I do when I'm shopping for new shoes, but you you're, but they're not collecting data on like sick newborn babies.
2: Exactly. Right. Is yeah. that mind blowing to you? Cause yeah. it was yeah. crazy mind blowing to me.
0: Okay. Yes. My mind is blown. So what do you do?
2: Well, I mean, it seemed like such a pressing problem. It also helped that we were funded as a moonshot project by the Google founders, that it, it was a high profile investment and it sort of naturally led way for, you know, at a place like Stanford, Curiosity. Uh-huh. And we had some amazing collaborators who were equally curious, who said, well, let's dive in and see what we'll understand. And, and that was the start of it. I, I literally, you know, got hold of this massive 1,200 page, like this huge, thick book to learn about babies and what conditions they experience and what does it all mean. And then starting to understand how does it show up in the data and, you know, spent evenings and weekends. And actually, I remember sitting in the basement of uh, Stanford Hospital uh, at over Christmas trying to work on trying to get data out of the health record in the first place. And uh-huh. we were trying to experiment with all sorts of techniques for pulling the data out, which, you know, now is a whole lot easier than it was 12 years ago.
0: Because right, it's not built for that, right? It's basically built somewhat to track the patient and to a significant degree to like bill insurance, right? That's traditionally what electronic medical records were for.
2: That's exactly right.
0: Kind of amazing, kind of weird. I mean, we I want to talk more about the bigger idea of Data and healthcare, but just to kind of land this moment early in your career at Stanford, like, is there some project you do? Like, what is the end of your work at Stanford?
2: So the the project was, you know, we're monitoring these premature babies, right? Anywhere between twenty-four week old babies, which are very very tiny, yeah, like very Tw- twenty-four
0: early. weeks of gestation to exactly, be yeah, yeah,
2: to like twenty-eight. 30, 32. And yeah. the idea was these babies, you know, are like they're at risk for significant, like an array of complications. Yeah. And the idea is the sooner you know, the earlier you can do something about it, the greater the chance that you're gonna actually resuscitate them. So our job was like, could we look at this data from the second they're born and collect this data to start analyzing and modeling which babies are at risk for which of these complications. And if you could, then you could start to, put more of these preventative prophylactic type pathways or approaches sure. in place for caring. Basically debates.
0: identify problems more quickly leading to better outcomes. That's the basic desire.
2: Exactly. And in the process I discovered like, you know, a long time ago there was a physician named
0: Virginia Apgar.
2: And what she figured out is like, just by measuring five different things from when the baby is born, she can compute a very simple score that tells you how the baby is doing. And so- So naturally the question we asked is, okay, so now that we are seeing all these ways in which the machine learning and AI is discovering novel signs and patterns that are predictive, could we just simply combine this to come up with a simple score Uh that says, you know, can I predict complications? And what we found was this new simple score that uses data that no special thing you have to do. It's already being collected. We just analyze it and we auto-compute the score turns out to be much more predictive than the ABCAR huh. at predicting complications.
0: And so so it worked. I mean, did do people use it? Is it standard of care now? What happened with that, with that research?
2: So at that point I was like, oh, this is so cool. And literally we got all these journalists who wanted to write about it. Yeah. And it was on the fundraising, you know, it was like Stanford's fundraising highlight for like the next five years, et cetera. But what was the saddest thing about it is that there was no natural mechanism for implementing it uh-huh. in practice. And it had to do with so many different pieces to it. Like we didn't have the infrastructure. We didn't have the like know-how of like, how do you get physicians to trust something like this? Yeah, How do you build this in a way that is trustworthy and reliable? How do you do this so that it's not just like a, a pet project in one hospital, but it's like a s- system that is yeah. scalable nationally? And, you know what is the incentive structure who pays for it and why would they pay for it and all of that is literally what sort of got me like got me super interested in the field where i started to feel wow we're at the start of what feels like is a massive movement has many components to be figured out but we need to figure this out interestingly at the time um on sandhill road you know by virtue of being in palo alto yeah sandhill road
0: where all the venture capitalists are yeah. exactly yeah. people
2: were like this is fantastic here's money why don't you start a company on this topic and i spent six months investigating you know talking to lots of peers um health systems hospitals and realizing we're just too early huh. there's a lot of work that needs to go in place for this to become something that will scale nationally now, fast forward 10 years later.
0: I want to fast forward, but give me just another moment. When you say it's too early, like, what? in what ways was it too early? Like, specifically, what was not, not ready in the world to start a company at that time?
2: So the first thing we needed is for hospitals to be ready to implement a system like that. For uh-huh. that to happen, they needed to have implemented the electronic health record. Uh-huh. Be stable users of the HR so that they'd be willing to plug in third-party systems on top of it.
0: And it's kind of amazing that... Ten years ago, you know, 20 whatever, 20 teens, still hospitals were not sort of ubiquitous users of electronic medical records, right? Like doctors were still writing on paper.
2: Honestly, coming from computer science where I did, you know, where I was involved in other areas of AI and computer science, like this was like the biggest like shift in mindset. Uh I felt every time I came back into the healthcare side of the equation, it felt like I was going at least 20, 30
0: years back. Right, like in a time machine going into the past when you walk into the hospital, which is particularly, I don't know, ironic, surprising, given how in in some ways healthcare feels very cutting edge, right? Like a central interesting thing to me about the work that you do is the way in which healthcare is, you know, you go get a whatever, a, a CT scan. It's this incredible machine and it uploads to a computer and a whatever AI radiologists can, you know, read the scan, blah, blah, blah. And yet, on the kind of data side, on the complicated patient at the bedside side, it's still very kind of old-fashioned and almost artisanal.
2: I mean, you raise like a fantastic point, which is, I think when it comes to introducing and designing new medicines, yeah, we've become really, really good. But in terms of once the medicine is produced, in terms of actually accelerating the adoption optimizing the uptake, yeah designing who gets it and what dose and when detecting early who would benefit from it that's what i call the healthcare delivery side of the equation i feel like there's a very very vast gap of what needs to happen to get better
0: so okay so you so you do this project you see that it's too early to start a company um because the world isn't ready yet, because hospitals aren't even widely using electronic medical records yet, much less being ready to sort of export the data and listen to the data, et cetera. And you um, take a take a job as a professor at Johns Hopkins, right? Is that the next step? That's right.
2: And part of the move to Hopkins was realizing there's so much depth and breadth of medicine, not just around the uh, on the actual devices or the engineering or the chemical or the drug development, But also on the delivery side Uh like how what does it take to like scale ideas nationally how do you design policy around it there was sort of a whole institute dedicated to scaling ideas nationally so to me that was extremely exciting to learn about what would it take to really build the foundations of a field like this and moving to Baltimore was a big move But I was just excited by the idea of learning it all and learning it, especially as an engineer, as an AI researcher, as an outsider coming into healthcare.
0: In a minute, Suchi and her colleagues figure out how to use AI to detect when certain patients are at risk for complications, and also how to get doctors to listen. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wise Okay, 10 seconds. How many things can you name that are always growing? The universe, easy one. Um, my kids, so far. Uh, to-do lists. Uh, for this month, my sugar snap peas. I know that's not always. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to give you one more. Businesses on Shopify. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. There are key moments in every endeavor. I ask pretty much everybody I interview on this show about their key moments, their breakthroughs, their failures, their turnarounds, and Shopify can be there for you at all of your key moments. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash problem. Go to shopify.com slash problem now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash problem. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry, Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. The automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat Well, you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. So Suchi is at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and she has this big idea, using AI to help doctors treat hospital patients. But she has to figure out exactly what to focus on
2: one of the big areas was this idea of like early detection of patients at risk for complications Uh and diagnostic errors being the third leading cause of death. Like, that's nuts. Like, so today, you know, there are critical moments that are missed. We get patients the wrong diagnosis or that they're developing something subtly and slowly. That's like a whole branch of diagnostic errors where, you know, complication or a condition develops, but they don't get noticed in a timely fashion. Uh And so... These seemed perfect for AI to come in with the kind of data that exists to be able to flag patients that are high risk and make it easy to provide a second pair of eyes.
0: Because it's basically pattern matching, right? I mean, differential diagnosis is taking lots of different variables from the patient and um, trying to put those variables together to match the patient to, you know, thousands of other patients and say, oh, all of these Uh, all of these variables, all of these health indicators suggest that the patient has disease X. Like that's fundamentally what a differential diagnosis is. And like machine learning should be very good at that.
2: Exactly. And previously people have attempted differential diagnosis with very coarse symptoms, Uh like high level description of like, you have cough, you have fever. What was different this time around is because of the EHR, we had very detailed data.
0: The EHR, the electronic health record, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. And so it provided this brand new opportunity to, to do this. And then, you know, naturally when you go down the list and start looking at problem areas, sepsis is a model disease we chose to demonstrate the idea.
0: And so let's just talk about sepsis for a minute. What is sepsis?
2: So let's say a patient gets infected. Your auto, your immune system is now going to do respond in order to protect your body. But in a, in sepsis, it overreacts and starts attacking your organ systems Leading to organ failure uh, and uh, death, and so the idea of its sepsis treatment is very much the earlier you can detect it, the better you are at like tackling it.
0: Right. Okay. So, I I buy it. It seems seems like a big problem, and it seems like one that might be solved, or at least uh, you know made less bad by uh, with the application of machine learning. So, how do you? How do you actually do it? What do you have to do to, to build the model and see if it works and get people to use it?
2: Yeah. So this is almost like what you're um, about to describe in two minutes, what was almost a five-year journey. So first, it's collecting a huge amount of data where you can identify both patients are septic versus not septic and when they had it and what other conditions did they have and what else was happening in their life. Right. And, you know, all the data leading up to that episode and what was done after the fact. So you get the data. Then the next part is, you know, you have to actually understand the biological process or the clinical process that's happening and layer that on top of the data to make sure you're going from like just bits and bytes to data that makes sense. Okay. And then you implement lots of different learning algorithms to be able to experiment. You know, the thing that we first did versus the thing we do now, there's like lots of generations of improvements in order to get to a place where you're going from like, you know, not very good signal very good signal.
0: So you're you're building a model through trial and error, basically, trying to get an AI model that, that has a high sensitivity and specificity, that's good at, at issuing an alert when a, when a patient has sepsis and doesn't issue too many alerts when the patient doesn't have sepsis, basically.
2: Exactly. And also does it in a way that, you know, when it says somebody has sepsis, it's able to explain why. It's able to provide enough information so that huh. the clinician can act on it. And it's not doing it so early that there's not enough to work on. And it's not doing it so late that it's useless.
0: Like often people talk about AI models, machine learning models as black boxes, right? Like very good at pattern matching, very good at predicting the next word. But we don't know why. And so you're saying in this instance, you sort of need to know why.
2: My very key evolution of a scientist working in this area was in the beginning, I saw it all as data and math. Uh-huh. And then as I started working more and more in interfacing and actually deploying systems like this, what I started realizing, it's actually not math and data, it's about trust. Because ultimately to get adoption and to get outcomes, I need to get trust from these highly trained clinicians who've studied this year in, year out, and they have a process and a system working and you have to fit within their system
0: and they're very busy and it's very high stakes and they kind of think they know everything and it's so presumably very hard to get them to trust you uh, in making their clinical judgments
2: exactly but moreover i've also been on the other side of like tons of engineers making all sorts of claims about their system knows better yeah but when you actually go and make sense of what the evaluations they've done they literally have very little understanding of medicine and the practice of healthcare. So, like, their claims are mostly not good. Yeah. So, a huge part of it is like developing respect and humility for the system, the complexity, so that when you're bringing in this new thing, it really truly fits. It's easy to use, uh-huh. it makes sense, uh-huh. it creates value. Uh-huh. Without all that, you're not going to get to the benefits.
0: So now, you say creates value, and suddenly you sound like a founder, an entrepreneur, and not like an academic. Where where in this arc do you start a company?
2: You know, it was somewhere in 2018. I remember 2018 was a transformative year for me for a number of reasons. Um, I'll start with the very simple thing of, like, when we first built this system and deployed it, only, like, two or three clinicians used it. And it was the two to three clinicians who were involved in working on the project with us. What I realized was we knew from looking at large amounts of data that the system was working. It was working correctly. And we could identify these cases. We could identify them early. And even from interacting with clinicians, we knew you could do something differently about it. So it's, it's one thing for system to detect. You know, clinicians will say, so what? So what am I supposed to do about it? And in this scenario, we'd even done studies to know that actually, they could be acting, you know, they could use this output to meaningfully change the patient's care. So then to me, the question was, okay, if we know this thing works, why the heck are we not succeeding? And that's kind of where it went from the puzzle of math and data to trust. You know, how do we develop and deploy it in a way that's transparent? How do we understand, like, what are the top of mind issues from a practicing clinician's point of view? And how do we address it? Where are we creating value? How do we start quantifying value?
0: Are there any moments where you're like, you know you have this thing that can be helpful, and yet someone, a doctor, a hospital administrator, whatever, is telling you why they're not going to use it, basically?
2: I mean, so many moments. <laughs> I, I can't even, like, begin. So I think I remember this time when they basically were like, okay, this thing has flagged a system. What do I do with it? And I was like, you should look if the patient has septic. And they were like, are you kidding me? How many flags... Do you know how many alerting systems exist? Uh uh If I were to take every single alerting system and start to use that to start informing when I'm doing a diagnostic workup and what am I doing, I basically would not get my day-to-day work done.
0: Right. It's like if you're. It's like when you're if you're ever in an emergency room, like everything is beeping all the time, and your system is just one more beep in a sea of beeps that everybody ignores.
2: And you feel passionately about it. Yeah, they it's have your no beep. reason. You care
0: about this beep, but nobody else cares about this beep.
2: Nobody gives a damn. Yeah. And it was just like, so it was difficult, right? Like you come, I was sort of like, you know, I felt defeated. I, I sat there and I was like, this is so unbelievable. This is like so powerful. Why aren't they believing me? And so there was an information gap, right? Like uh-huh. Then it was like understanding, oh, this, you know, the system in which they live. Okay. I understand that all these different alerts that exist. How are these alerts created? How are we different? How can we demonstrate we're different? Why should we be trusted? And so that was as an example, starting point, like another one was like, we deployed it and we deployed it in a way where it was, you know, within the electronic health record, but it was done in a way that was really cumbersome. Like every time they needed to respond, it was like a few, you know, it was like, a minute and a half yeah, of
0: work. Yeah.
2: And, you know, honestly, they're so busy, a minute and a half extra to do something that they don't already have total conviction in is like a lot to ask. Yeah. So then you spend a bunch of time optimizing. Well, how do we go it from me, take it from a minute and a half to like three seconds? Uh-huh. How do we optimize it so that it's instant- instantaneous? It's easy. It's just there.
0: So this isn't about the data at all. This is just User experience basically.
2: Hugely. Human factors. Like human factors. And human factors here is very different and complicated because you're trying to optimize human factors within a chassis that is very complicated, right? Like you're not like standalone software. This is like you're within an electronic health record. And like how do you do this in a way that the electronic health record providers will allow you to embed information? Not your
0: software, yeah. It's not
2: your software and how can you do it in a way that like is smooth and seamless and they actually like it. And then you can do this in a way where it's not just custom built for a Johns Hopkins, but it's something that you can send to take to a rural hospital.
0: Right. So, so you're doing all this. At what point in this arc do you start the company?
2: So another like personal thing happened, which is I lost my nephew to sepsis and you know, it was The craziest like saddest like you know most insane feeling yeah to to be able to like you know as like a researcher as a scientist i'm like net deep in these research areas and then it's one thing to go and talk about it to say well here's how you do it and here's how it works and here's why it will work and here's why this is a great idea and it's another to then come to that moment of realization where like well, I haven't actually done anything to make a difference.
0: So you're already working on sepsis? When it yes. Happens. And your nephew, you say nephew meaning younger than you? Is this a, a young? Much
2: younger than me. Wow. And realizing, like, I was doing, like, it all sounded like an excellent, like, it all sounded great on paper, you know? It, it was like, you know, I'd go to meetings and lots of people would listen and they'd say, yay, great idea, et cetera. But then at the end of the day, for me, it was like, I'd gotten too used to, you know, it's easy. It's easy to like talk about something smart and then people say it's a great idea and then you leave the room and you feel good about it and then you go back and you work on it some more. And I think it was hard, like hard for me to sort of realize like I had gotten to carry it away and I'd gotten to carry it away like not thinking about what is it actually going to take to make it real? And the making it real is what's like just so much harder than I thought. But part of it is I also felt like this isn't just a, this isn't just like a, you know, for an idea of a sepsis. This is really like crazy to me that this isn't how we operate. The Like, I think the time has come. And what is exciting to me is in the last year or two, I'm starting to see the world has shifted. There's been a very meaningful change in the last few years I think losing my, like losing my nephew made it very real. It went from this idea to feeling like this was an opportunity where it's very real now. We can make a difference. The pieces exist and I need to make it happen. I can't hide anymore. And in 2018, I went from, like started to realize like most systems had finished implementing the health record, electronic health record, policies were starting to change. The AI was mature enough that it was really clear we could do a lot with it. And it was my very little part I could do to, you know, address my, my you know, my part of grief related to my nephew. Like, it was the very little role I could play. So, so, so in 2018, I started to, you know, think, go after it with the idea that we're going to actually start a company. We're actually going to turn this into something that scales nationally. And that's where it all began.
0: So you start the company and you, you do build this uh, AI model to uh, detect sepsis in hospitalized patients. And, and you do this study and you wind up uh, publishing the outcome in, uh, in the journal Nature Medicine, right, which seems like a big, big moment in, in your work, in the life of your company. So tell me about that study.
2: Yeah, so in 22, in July 22, we had three studies. Uh, they were featured on the cover of Nature Medicine. These were very big studies for the field. Then the studies that came out in uh, 22 were basically showing how we implemented the system at five different sites, like both in the emergency department, the floor, the hospital flows, the ICUs, across academic and community hospitals. So five different hospitals in totally different geographic region, right? In Maryland, in DC, rich communities, poor communities. And what we were able to show was the system, both like, you know, almost three quarter of a million patients in the study, 4,400 physicians and nurses who were part of the study, that you could detect sepsis significantly earlier than they were currently detecting and acting on. So that was one. Second, we showed that, they, in fact, when we then implemented the system, we saw, saw meaningful reduction in treatment timing. Like patients were getting t- treatment in a more timely fashion when providers were seeing the alert and acting off of it. And then the third, we know early detection is possible now and we know treatment timing is moved and we've known in sepsis that early treatment is the key to better outcomes. So the question is, do we see that in our population as well? And we saw that in patients who actually got you know, early alerts on, on who got the alerts and providers acted on it, we actually saw much better outcomes in terms of reductions in mortality, morbidity, length of state, fewer complications, secondary complications that arise out of sepsis. So it was just extremely exciting to see that we could go from, you know, a technical idea to actual outcomes. And then one of the most interesting things we'd studied here was adoption will clinicians adopt? It was a very real world study to show like, can a system like this actually work? And we showed 90% physician adoption. So that was extremely exciting to see. And that's what I call, that's what you know was about closing the trust gap.
0: So, okay. So you published this paper, um, whatever, a year and a half ago. Where are you now? What What's your company doing?
2: One thing that's very, uh, also that I didn't cover earlier is that we expanded the system dramatically from not just working on sepsis, but a variety of other conditions like sepsis, where there is very significant both clinical benefit, but also financial benefit for the health system. Uh. The reason the financial piece matters is, you know, ultimately health systems are working on one, 2% margin for them to be able to implement systems that actually improve care. They still need to be able to financially justify that this can be done. And that was crucial.
0: So what are some of the other uh, things you're working on besides sepsis now?
2: Like another example area is pressure ulcers. Okay. Huge like, area where good, like... Like, con- like
0: bed sores? Like a bed, bed sore? Bed sores. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Like it's a an area where, again, huge patient impact in terms of like, you know, if you do end up getting a serious bed sore, how detrimental it is for the patient, sometimes leading to death, sometimes leading to need for amputation. Yeah. But even more interestingly, huge burden on the caregivers themselves. Like nurses today have to do a huge amount of work to take care of these patients. Like today, there are lots of scenarios where these patients are missed. And there's an opportunity where you can actually use this data to identify this high risk pool and start again implementing these new ways in which you can do targeted, you know, preventative measures.
0: What has to happen for you to, you know for your software to get adopted at hospitals all around the country. Like I buy that it's helpful. How, how does it, how do you get from it being a kind of researchy thing to being a, thing that everybody uses.
2: So the hurdles we needed to cross was, one, we needed to figure out a way to get approvals from the electronic health records to be able to integrate it. We did that. Took a couple of years. From
0: like the just the big software makers, Epic, whatever, the companies that make the electronic health records. They exactly. have to say yes. Okay, so that's done. Check. Great. What Check. has to happen next? Yeah.
2: Next, you need a system that is able to, you know, when you go from one site to the next to the next to the next, you need the ability to be able to measure and generalize as you cross site and reliably perform.
0: Uh-huh. So it has to work in lots of different kinds of hospitals that collect different kinds of data in different settings.
2: And in our partnerships, we've shown that data. Okay. Third, like I said, we have to show that basically people will adopt in these different environments. So we have data to show that. Okay. Four, in some of these areas, you need FDA approval. Okay. And in the areas we need FDA approval, we're working with the FDA to get those
0: approvals. Okay. So that's kind of the next step.
2: Correct. And then once that's done, you can now start to, you know, it's it's available it can be marketed you can scale it nationally all very exciting things
0: so so if things go well for you what will the world look like in say five years
2: oh my god so exciting <laughs> i think we will actually be implemented at 60 70 80 percent of the market i hope in the u.s um What's interesting now is like, you know, healthcare is a market, which is a leader follower market. And once you show things that work, it makes logical sense. You have the proof points, you've tackled most of the common issues that people struggle with, then this is an area where you can scale. And when it comes to like the areas we're working in, which is clinical, unlike some of the other areas like billing and messaging and back office, you know, The years of development required to build what we build is very long. Like it's taken us eight to nine years to do all the pieces necessary to get to where we are. So there aren't as a a lot of like other competitors in the market. You have
0: a moat and FDA approval is going to be even more of a moat. Among other things. Exactly. So we have
2: a very, very significant like like moat and hurdles people have to cross to really get it to work. And we've invested in
0: them. And so in your happy five-year future, most of the hospitals in the country will be using your software, your models to detect sepsis, to detect bed sores earlier than they are now. And a
2: variety of other conditions. Like we've looked at our own financial models and show that like a, you know, modest uh, four to five hospital health system stands to gain like $50 50 to $100 million dollars from the implementation of our system in some, you know, the yes. condition areas we're
0: tackling. And people will die less and be less sick as a benefit also.
2: And that is honestly the biggest maturity I've had in building this company. I started from like the cause of caring yeah. and it was realizing like, it's funny. In healthcare, they're so used to caring for patients who are dying every day, they've gotten desensitized. You then come back to realizing you need the, other things to follow, like the money. You need to figure out a way to make it easy for them to do the right thing. Yeah. And when you do that, then they do actually care about doing the right thing because that's why they were there in the first place.
0: We'll be back in a minute with The Lightning Round. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org/wisefriend. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at t slash now. Okay. Uh, I'm going to keep you another two minutes or something to do a lightning round. Um, you went to college at Mount Holyoke, an all-women's college, Yeah, And so I'm curious, what is one thing you would tell someone considering attending an all-women's college?
2: Oh, I loved Mount Holyoke. It was so much fun. It's where I got my confidence that I could do really, really hard things and not be, you know, not feel defeated.
0: If you weren't working in healthcare, uh, where would you be trying to apply AI? Oh my God.
2: I've just been so obsessed with healthcare for the last decade. I haven't really lifted my head to think about other things. I mean, Honestly, there are a million areas you could apply it, but I don't like thinking about it because it's just that the need is so dire in healthcare and it's so hard. It's so hard for an AI researcher to focus in healthcare because they don't make it easy.
0: <laughs> you, know, you can make a
2: lot more money doing the same kind of things in finance. You can get the data more easily. You can make money off of it more easily. Like it, it, it is annoying. It is really annoying.
0: Is ChatGPT overrated or underrated?
2: Actually, I think it's underrated
0: okay go on i think
2: you know when we see the math we're like okay that's the math that's interesting to me what was really informative was like the experience the social experience huh. it was so exciting to see people who first interacted with it and you know have the head mind be blown by the experience and that sort of then informing how important the user experience side of the house is like uh-huh. you know we had some of the chatbot technology before we had some of the interactive but it's sort of how OpenAI designed it in the use cases like storytelling uh-huh. poems uh-huh. like the use cases where they trained the system to be very good at conversant like um uh, was what made the experience so exciting because then people could start you know like experiencing it themselves and that sort of opened up their mind to what else could it do
0: analogous to the lesson you were talking about in your own work where getting the answer right, figuring out if the person has sepsis is actually only part of what you have to do.
2: Huge. And that's, I think, where AI as a field has a lot of growing up to do. Because historically, the people who've entered this field are, you know, they gravitate towards the math. They gravitate towards the hard science. But what they don't realize is ultimately it is a people problem that you're solving. You have to get people to love it. You have to get people to incorporate it in their daily lives for this to be successful. And you have to operate in a world which is not very precise. Like yeah. people have their faults and their mistakes and they work in a particular way and you've got to get this thing to fit.
0: Suchi Saria is a professor at Johns Hopkins and the founder and CEO of Bayesian Health. Today's show was produced by Edith Russelo and Gabriel Hunter Chang. It was edited by Karen Chikurji and engineered by Sarah Bouguer. You can email us at problem@pushkin.fm. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and we'll be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem?
1: marketing.com
0: if you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start here's one you can add to your list the jordan harbinger show the jordan harbinger show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to ceos to astronauts authors and performers You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.